speaking for the rest of it. Um, but I just feel it might be more appropriate to have the word first, and then that will give us some more time to worship God after I've spoken. Now, uh, it would have been very interesting if the stewards, as you all came in, had given you a piece of paper. Um, I was toying with the idea of arranging that and then putting a question to you all at this stage of the meeting and for you all having to reply to that question in a one-word answer. And I want you to think, what would you have put if we'd have done that? And the question I would have put to you was this. In your opinion, what is the main activity or program that God has been working on in his church over the last 20 years or so. And I reckon that a lot of you, perhaps most of you, would have written down the word restoration. And you would have been right. That's not necessarily the only thing. In fact, it's far from being the only thing that God has been doing in the church in recent years. But it's certainly been one of the most important things. And we have been so privileged over the last quarter of a century or so to see God restoring things to the church that have been lost in some cases for centuries, in some cases since Bible times. We've seen thousands upon thousands of people coming in again to the experience of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and experiencing the whole realm of spiritual gifts. We've seen uh, worship, true biblical exuberant spiritual worship restored to the church. We've seen various ministry gifts restored to the church, the ministry of the prophet, the ministry of the apostle. We've seen biblical church structures restored to the church. And it's been thrilling not only to see God work in that way, not just in this country, but right across the world, uh, not only to see it, but actually in our context here in Brighton to be part of it. And that has been tremendous. And what I want to talk to us about this morning is another aspect of New Testament church life, something that was very much a characteristic of the early church as we read the Acts of the Apostles, that I believe with all my heart God wants to restore to the church today. When I talk about the church, I'm not specifically referring to Southwick Congregation, or Clarendon Church, but I'm talking about the church generally in this country. Something that God wants to restore in great measure to his people today. And we've seen it to a certain extent, we've tasted it a little, but I believe that God has much more of this particular characteristic uh, that he wants us to experience. And the thing that we're going to be talking about this morning is what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Let's open our Bibles. Can we start in the Acts of the Apostles? And a very familiar chapter. And chapter 2, a very dramatic chapter. It's the account of what happened on the day of Pentecost. I want to show you from the Acts of the Apostles how much a feature of New Testament church life this fear of the Lord was. Let's break into Acts 2. At verse 41, it says, Those who had received his word, his word is the message that the Apostle Peter had preached, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
And they were continually devoting themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then I want you to particularly note the next verse, verse 43. And everyone, not just some of the people, but everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And it's interesting to see what comes immediately next in that verse because there's a link between the two. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Then if you could turn on a few pages to Acts chapter 5, another pretty dramatic chapter, um, recounting the story of the husband and wife Ananias and Sapphira who conspired together to lie to the apostles. And uh, they were rewarded for their sin by the Lord striking them dead instantly. And uh, that had a big impact on the church. And we're going to read verse 5 of chapter 5 of the Acts of the Apostles. Ananias, when he heard these words, fell down and he breathed his last. And the result, great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose, and they covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. And there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out as well. And she immediately fell at Peter's feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And just move on a few more chapters to Acts chapter 9 as I switch to the NIV. Acts 9 and verse 31. The church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in number, living in the fear of the Lord. So we're seeing that the fear of the Lord was a quality, it was a characteristic that we read about on several occasions in the Acts of the Apostles. It's something that they knew and they experienced in their church life. Now, I think it would be helpful to ask ourselves, what do we really mean when we're talking about the fear of the Lord? It's possible to misinterpret what we're talking about. We're not talking about the sort of cringing, cowering away type of fear. That's not what the fear of the Lord is all about. God doesn't want us to be terrified of him in that way. Let me give you a definition of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is having such a healthy, deep, holy respect for God that we stand in awe of him for who he is and what he does and we dare not disobey him. In preparing this message, I spent some time uh, looking up words in Cruden's Concordance and they have a definition of the fear of the Lord. And they say that the fear of the Lord is that reverence for God which leads to obedience because of one's realisation of his power as well as of his love to man. 
Now, you may remember that about two years ago, Chris Wisdom, back at uh, <coughs> home base <coughs> at Clarendon, he preached a little ser- a series of sermons on the fear of the Lord. And uh, I don't know where he got this definition from, but it's a good one. And he described the fear of the Lord as a wholesome dread of displeasing or offending God. So we're talking about an attitude towards God that is full of awe. It's full of reverence. Uh, There's a deep and a holy respect for God in the fear of the Lord. And let me give you two biblical definitions of the fear of the Lord. First of all, in Proverbs 8.13, it says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And one more, in Malachi 2 and verse 5, God is talking about uh, the covenant he made with Levi. And God describes Levi in these terms. He said, he feared me and he stood in awe of my name. And in essence, that is what the fear of the Lord is all about. It's standing in awe of God. Now, where do we go from here? What I want to do over the next few minutes is deal with three things. Now, first of all, we're going to look at the question, why should we fear God? What are some of the reasons we should fear God. And then we're going to go on and we're going to look at results of fearing God. What actually happens in our lives as we begin to experience the fear of the Lord? And then we're going to sum it up by looking at uh, how to cultivate the fear of the Lord. How do we actually get the fear of the Lord ourselves today in the 20th century? How do we obtain it? How do we receive the fear of the Lord? So let's go back and let's ask ourselves, first of all, why should we fear God? Are there good reasons for fearing God? The answer is yes. And the first reason I want to give you is because God himself commands us and desires us to fear him. And I would say even if there were no other reasons at all for fearing God, that should settle it for us on its own. If God commands it, we should do it. It's as simple as that. If God commands us to fear him, we should fear him. And I want you to turn back into the Old Testament for a little while, uh, back into Deuteronomy, very early on in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29. And as I read this to you, I want you to sense something of God's heart cry for his people. And he says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me. And keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. All right? You sense God's heart's longing. I really believe that as God looks down on his people today, right across the world, one of the things that his heart is wanting to express is this longing for his people to fear him. All right? Then we move on. We move over to Deuteronomy and chapter 10. And let's have a look at verse 12. And it says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? So what does God require of me? And what does God require of you? He requires us to fear him. And then let me uh, read you a verse from the New Testament, 1 Peter 2. And verse 17, a very straightforward little verse with four simple commands in it. And Peter writes and he says, Honour all men, 
love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we're commanded, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, to fear God. Some people think the letters in the New Testament are just good advice, or they're good counsel. But what we read there was the apostolic command. A man was writing under the total inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the command comes through, and it's to you and it's to me. And the command is, fear God. So first reason we should fear God is because God himself commands it and he desires it. Second reason, because of God's character and nature. And going back into Deuteronomy, let, you, let me read you a verse from Deuteronomy 10 again. Verse 17, uh, a very, very powerful verse. And it says, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality. Uh, The authorized version translates that, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God. That's part of God's character. It's part of God's nature. It's great to teach our children to pray, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And and that's good. They're aspects of the way that Jesus deals with people. But we've also, we need a balanced view of God. And we need to know God also as the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, all right? That's the second reason why we should fear God, because of his character, because of his nature. Third reason, because he has total authority to judge and to discipline in this life and in the life to come. I want to uh, direct you to something that King Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you can find that. Ecclesiastes, the very last chapter, Ecclesiastes 12, and the last two verses of that book. And this is Solomon's grand conclusion. Uh, Solomon was a man who experienced a lot in life. He was a man of experience. And he sums everything that he's learned in life up by the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. And this is what he says. He says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Because, here's the reason, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that's the reason Solomon was saying that we should fear God. God's going to bring every act to judgment, things that are hidden, uh, everything that's hidden, whether it's good or evil. And we just stop, and we need to just sort of pause to consider the implications of that scripture. And that, I believe, will lead us into the fear of the Lord. Jesus said a similar thing in uh, Luke's Gospel, and, uh, and chapter 12 in Luke's Gospel... Jesus was talking to his disciples and he made very much the same point that Solomon made that we just looked at. And Jesus says in Luke 12 verse 4, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. There's not much more that you can do to somebody once you've killed them. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Jesus was making the same point. We need to remember that God has authority to judge and to discipline in this life 
and in the life to come. God has the right to cast people into hell. God has the right to welcome people into heaven. God has the right to give life. God has the right to take life away. That's another reason why we should fear God. So those are three reasons, important reasons, why we should fear God. Let's move on to the the next section. Uh, Results of fearing God. If we begin to experience the fear of the Lord in our lives, what impact, what results happen in our lives? And uh, I've got another few things I want to say to you on this theme. First of all, and I believe this is one of God's prime reasons in commanding us to fear him. First thing, it produces obedience in us. If we go back into the Old Testament, we go to the book of Exodus. And uh, Exodus 20 is uh, an account of that literally terrifying experience that the people of God went through at the foot of Mount Sinai. Reading from verse 18 of Exodus 20... All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. Let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. I believe one of the the best motivations for us to live holy lives and pure lives is to know the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord deters us from sin. The fear of the Lord deters us from backsliding. Let me read you something in Proverbs, Proverbs 16 and verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil and we're not just talking here about public obedience public obedience is actually quite easy really when we're with other Christian brothers and sisters it's probably harder to disobey God than it is to obey him but the fear of the Lord also produces in us an obedience that takes place in private and when we're on our own and when people can't see what we're doing and the hidden aspects of our lives, like the thoughts we think, and the motives of our heart, and the desires of our heart, and the attitudes that we have, these are the things in which we are obedient when we really come in to an experience of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord leads us to be very careful, diligent about the way that we live, and the way we spend our time, Uh, the words we speak to each other. Uh, I want to quote from a book by a lady many of you will have heard of, a lady called Joy Dawson. And she is a a missionary whom God has used greatly. She's got a lot of connections with Youth with a Mission. And uh, she is writing on the fear of the Lord in this. The book is called Intimate Friendship with God uh, Through Understanding the Fear of the Lord. I don't think it's on the on the bookstore, I'm told that there is a British edition being produced sometime early next year by a company called Kingsway. (laughs) So it should be available, a British edition in smaller format sometime next year. That's to the best of my knowledge. Let me quote you something that she says on the same theme that I'm talking about. The fear of God is evidenced in our lives by instant, 
joyful and whole obedience to God. That is biblical obedience. Anything else is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Doing what God has asked with murmuring is disobedience. So she's making the point that one of the things that happens in our life as we begin to fear God is that there is obedience in every area of our lives. Um, One other little verse on this theme that I want to mention, Genesis 22 and verse 12, there's a very interesting comment um, by the angel to Abraham. Genesis 22 is the chapter that talks about that incredibly uh, tense story about Abraham going up the mountain, going on a journey for several days, taking his son Isaac and being prepared to sacrifice him uh, in obedience to the Lord. And uh, the tension mounts as Abraham is there over the body of his beloved son and he's got the knife in his hands and he's about to thrust the knife down onto his son's body and suddenly God calls the thing off. And the angel speaks to Abraham and this is what the angel says to Abraham. This is one of the things. He says, now I know that you fear God. How did the angel know that Abraham feared God? Because... He was totally obedient to God, even in the thing that would have cost him more than anything else that he had. All right? Now I know that you fear God. That is one of the things that happens in our lives when we start to live in the fear of God. It produces obedience in us. Second thing, it releases us from the fear of man. What is the fear of man? Let me quote from Joy Dawson again. She says the fear of man is being more impressed with man's reaction to our actions than with God's reaction. That's bondage. When we have the fear of God upon us, we are impressed only with God's reaction. We are freed from the concern of what people think. And Proverbs describes the fear of man as this. The fear of man brings a snare. In other words, it's something that traps us. A snare traps us. And when we fear God... Rather than man, we are released from the fear of man. That's the second result of fearing God. The third thing, uh, the fear of God is rewarded by many benefits, blessings and promises. Now, I don't want to encourage us to have a sort of what's-in-it-for-me attitude, all right, as far as the fear of the Lord is concerned. Um, sometimes we can be tempted to do that. Uh, For instance, on the subject of giving or tithing, we have all these wonderful promises from God that if we give, God will give back to us. He will bless us. He will give us back more than we actually give to him. And it's possible that sometimes we can be motivated to obey God more by the reward than by the command. And uh, it's possible that we can do the same sort of thing with the fear of the Lord. But having said that, there are numerous promises and blessings for people who fear God. And, and we could go through um, uh, 47 of them. I am aware of 47, did a little study on it, and there are 47 that I know of, tremendous blessings and promises and benefits uh, that are for the people of God if we fear the Lord. Now, really, that's uh, another Bible study in itself. Now, what I've done is, uh, so I give you the evidence of this, um, I have listed here, I had typed and uh, photocopied um, lists 
of all these benefits, blessings and promises for those who fear God. Uh, all 47 of them. And you get the promise and you get the scripture reference. So if you've got a free evening tonight, uh, there's no cricket highlights on television, so most of you will have a free evening. I don't think there's a prayer meeting either. Uh, you can do a little Bible study on promises for those who fear the Lord. You can look up the scripture and meditate on it that says that God's great goodness is stored up for those who fear the Lord. There's also a promise that those who fear the Lord will know God's blessing on them and their children. Many other promises. Uh, For women as well. The woman who fears the Lord will be praised. We'll show you the scripture for that. Um, uh, Those who fear the Lord experience God's mercy. They will be rewarded at the judgment. And uh, that's five or six of them. And there are many others. And we've got a whole load of those. And you can take them when you go. That's a Bible study in itself. So I won't say any more about that at the moment. So those are reasons, those are um, things that happen to us when we fear the Lord. Uh, Things that happen in our lives. Final thing that I want us to look at this morning is how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord in our own lives? How do we get it? How do we receive it? Uh, How do we start to experience it? And I've got four simple steps that I, I want to put to you. First thing is, Actually, this is three in one, really, so I'm cheating a bit. Choose it, pray for it, and keep seeking it. We can actually choose to fear God. Proverbs 1, 29, talks about people who actually chose not to fear God. That means we can make the decision by an act of our will to fear God. And I would say, if we want to experience the fear of the Lord, that's the first vital step we need to take. We want to say, Lord, I decide by an act of my will that I am going to fear you. That's the first thing. Um, Also, I mentioned in that first thing, pray for it. Um, Let me uh, read you Psalm 86, verse 11. A prayer of David. He said, give me, praying to the Lord, an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So David made it a matter of prayer that he would know the fear of the Lord. I would encourage us all to do the same. And also I said, keep seeking it. Proverbs 23, verse 17, in the NIV, it says, always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. So it's not just a question of praying for it once and forgetting about it, but something that we need, something that I need to keep praying and praying for. Lord, make me a person with an undivided heart, someone who fears your name. Second step in cultivating the fear of the Lord in our own lives. Meditate on God's character and nature. Now, we've already talked a little bit about God's character and nature, but I'm thinking particularly of verses like that one in Deuteronomy 10 that I read out. The Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome, or terrible. And I think it's really helpful to instill in our hearts the fear of the Lord Uh, to read verses that talk about God and his character and his nature in that way. Third step, meditate on God's terrible acts. We read in the Bible about different types of works that God did. And I believe that, that something that encourages us and helps us to fear God is to read about his terrible acts For instance, that story that we looked at earlier, Ananias and Sapphira. 
if we read that and try and weigh up all the implications for our own lives uh, in that story, then that can produce in us a sense of the fear of God. Same with the story of Noah and the flood and uh, other passages in the scripture that talk about God's terrible acts. And uh, the effect that those sort of passages have on me is to think, wow, what a mighty God. This God is to be feared. He's to be loved. He's to be worshipped. He's to be adored. And he's to be feared. I was listening to a tape a couple of years ago um, by an American called Keith Benson. And uh, he related a story on the tape. The tape was on the fear of the Lord about a man in Chile in South America. And uh, this man used to stay at home and he used to curse God. He was anti-God. And he said, if God is against me, let the earth swallow me up. And a few months later, Keith Benson relates this on the tape, a few months later there was a, a big earthquake and it swallowed up that man and his house. And I believe it's helpful that we meditate on God's terrible acts to produce in us a sense of the fear of God. Final thing I want to say this morning, and I believe that really if we want to fear God, there's no substitute for this. I would say in my own experience, limited, I would admit, of the fear of the Lord, that the one thing that has uh, encouraged, inspired, uh, stimulated me to fear God more than anything else is this. See God at work. See God in action yourself. Um, I don't believe there's any substitute for witnessing firsthand a supernatural intervention of God right where you are. I think back to one or two things um, in my life. I think back to the time when uh, I was on a student outreach team at a church in Brighton, at another church in Brighton, and uh, there were three of us on this team, and we used to quote, live by faith, um, which in that case meant we didn't receive salaries as such. Uh, I did this for nine months of my life. Uh, we used to rely and trust uh, in God to provide all our needs um, through gifts from other members of the body of Christ. And I remember one week we had a load of bills, and there was a bill for the phone, there was a bill for the electricity, there was a bill for the gas. Uh, there were at least one or two other bills, and we added them all up, and they came to about 150 pounds. And I, I distinctly remember that uh, the three of us got down and we prayed. We said, Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name to provide this money. And about two days later, uh, we had a check through the post from a church in Bristol that could not have possibly known of our financial needs at that time. We opened the letter looked at the cheque, and the amount on the cheque was for £149.88. And we were delighted, and I jumped around, and I bounced around, and I got very excited, and then suddenly it hit me what had happened. And I can only say that a sense of the fear of the Lord came over me. I stood in awe of God. I calmed down a bit, and I thought, how incredible. You know, we pray, God hears, he directs his servants about 150, 60 miles away uh, to, to act in response to our prayers, in response to our needs. And, and that did something for me. And various other things that had happened. I, mean, I think back to a couple of years ago 
in uh, one of the John Wimber meetings at the Brighton Centre. And uh, Deb and I were near the front of the meeting, and John Wimber was instructing people to pray for each other in the audience. And Deb and I were praying for this uh, reasonably large middle-aged lady, and her problem was she had a protruding belly button. And uh, earlier in the meeting, John Wimber had had a word of knowledge that there was somebody with a protruding belly button. And she'd been too embarrassed to say anything about it, and she confessed it to us. And we prayed for her. And I, Deb put her hand uh, a few inches away from this reasonably large middle-aged lady's stomach. And I saw Deb's hand starting to shake. And I thought, oh, come on, is this necessary? <laughs> Deb's getting emotional again. And uh, I watched it. And as I watched, it wasn't just Deb's hand that started to move, but uh, you could see this woman's stomach uh, rippling. <laughs> it was rippling uh, under the clothing. It wasn't a particularly pretty sight, <laughs> but it was an awesome sight. And you could see God was at work on this woman's stomach. And she said, it's going back in, this protruding belly button. I've never actually seen one of these things, right? So I can't describe it very well. But it was going back in. By the end of the evening, it had gone back in completely. And again, I was left standing in awe of God. I went back home. I'd been to Wimber the, the, the previous evening and came back with all sorts of big question marks dangling in front of my face. Well, what is all this about? And, uh, and then to see God in action, it just enabled me to stand in awe of God. One more scripture can we look at in the New Testament. We're going to close with this. Uh, Luke's Gospel and chapter 5. <coughs> We've had a look at uh, reasons why we should fear God. And we've had a look at the results of fearing God. And we're just closing on this section of uh, steps we need to take to really come into a living experience of the fear of God that will change not just our own lives, but our church life as well. Something that I really believe God wants to restore to his people today. Luke 5 and I want you to imagine that you are part of this scene, right, that I'm going to read about. Luke 5, 24. Um, let's break in halfway through the verse. Jesus said to the paralytic, imagine you're watching on, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them and he took up what had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. And those people who'd watched that, uh, they had seen God in action. They'd seen God at work. And look at verse 26, because that is uh, a description of their reaction. I love verse 26. They were all seized with astonishment. What a phrase. They were seized with astonishment. I believe God wants to seize us with astonishment um, about him. And they began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And uh, I just want to encourage us, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage myself to pray that we would see remarkable things as God moves among us. Things that would encourage us to know the fear of the Lord, that will produce obedience in our lives, not just in the public place, but in the private place as well. Let's bow our heads 
and we'll pray together.